Well, the war in the Ukraine drags horribly on. The jury is out on how it will end and what it will ultimately mean, both for geopolitics and for the energy world. As all of you know, the terrible conflict in Ukraine grinding on day by day and month by month, but our our ability to know what's actually happening is shrouded in misinformation, wishful thinking, propaganda. But one thing we do know, and we've talked about it in earlier podcasts, that the toolkit of non-military options, of sanctions and embargoes and that kind of thing, those are profoundly constrained by the fact that Europe, especially in the world at large, is so dependent on Russian exports of hydrocarbons, of oil, natural gas, and coal. A lot's happened since we last talked in this podcast about the energy linkage problem with Russia. Our government, and especially those in Europe, have announced energy delinking plans. Many of them will probably get framed as legislation in Europe shortly. In this episode of The Last Optimist, we're going to talk about those ideas and what they tell us about the real world, the deeply entangled world that policymakers have created with policies of the recent past and with plans that they're talking about for the foreseeable future. And the state of play, I should note, it's not exactly one that would make one optimistic. So I know I'm the last optimist. Now, the policymakers both here in America and overseas aren't uh, so far reacting to the current twin crises of energy inflation and the geopolitics of Russian energy dependence in ways that would make one optimistic. But what's becoming clear is that Europe's leaders and eventually ours, they're being forced to face up to the magnitude of the task to reduce, never mind eliminate, the use of Russian hydrocarbons. And that will, I optimistically suggest, ultimately force policymakers everywhere to face up to the broader challenge of ostensibly trying to transition away from using hydrocarbons in general. Let's start with the factual impossibilities of quickly delinking from Russian energy by replacing those hydrocarbons with alternative energy, mainly you know, solar, wind, and batteries, the, the triumvirate that's the center of uh, energy transition planning. I mean, the EU uh, and the International Energy Agency have recently released a comprehensive plans and again, the EU's case uh, ultimately intended to be enshrined in legislation. It's not, it's, they're not having an easy time of it uh, because of the asymmetric uh, impacts of any ideas on different members of the EU. But some history, I think, uh, gives us some context on uh, understanding what's happening, what could happen, and of course, what it means, what it means for the United States. Uh, but, but before briefly uh, reminding everybody about some relevant history, uh, let me cut to the chase. I'll, I'll tell you my conclusion, and you will not be shocked uh, that the world will ultimately has to that, that what the world will ultimately have to face up to, and that's any delinking from Russia uh, will be anchored in finding other sources for oil, gas, and coal. Not replacing oil, gas, and coal so much, but mainly finding more of them elsewhere. Okay, so let's let's put this current. Uh, crisis in a broader context. I think, I think we, we can probably safely say now that historians will see what's going on, what's unfolding now, and it's not finished, but it will, it will end, uh, is the world's third great energy shock. Now, the first two, uh, these are the post-World War II energy shocks, if you like. The first, the first two were 
Well, the first one was the 1972-73 Arab oil embargo, of course. And then in 1979, the Iranian Revolution, and both those events were political in nature. Uh, they both led to a significant share of world oil supply disappearing from markets. And both those events had enormous immediate and long-term economic and political consequences, many of which I would argue we still live with today. So the war in the Ukraine is forcing the world to rediscover that the importance of hydrocarbons is central uh, to economic growth and to geopolitical security. And it's making starkly clear that an energy transition, the so-called phrase du jour, the energy transition away from society's dependence on hydrocarbons hasn't happened. And despite escalating rhetoric about the need for an energy transition, what that uh, horrible conflagration in Ukraine is making clear in the attempts to delink from Russia is that a transition isn't feasible in any meaningful time frame. In fact, I'd have to say, and without uh, with all seriousness, without hyperbole, it's actually a dangerous delusion to think that an energy transition is possible in any meaningful time frames, and we're seeing the consequences of that delusion unfold right now as Europe and the United States struggle to think about how to uh, delink, punish, in fact, Russia. So an energy weapon, literally. It's, you know, it's just data, not, you know, what, what's possible is in the data, not aspirations. I've just, we've talked about this before. I'll say it again. Hydrocarbons are utterly essential to a civilization's survival that hasn't changed. And calls to transition to entirely replace hydrocarbons. We know why people are asking to do that or want to do that. It's, it's all about the uh, climate and the climate debate. But observing that a transition away from hydrocarbons isn't happening and won't happen in any meaningful time frame. As you might imagine, this typically evokes suspicious claims of uh, climate denialism or the equivalent that you're not taking, one is not taking seriously, the quote, climate challenge. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole. It's just the fact that the realities of the physics and engineering and economics of how energy systems actually work, these are just different domains are entirely different from, and they're not dependent on any opinions or about the facts or the debates about climate science. They just aren't related phenomenologies. What we can do about energy has nothing to do with what we like to do because of the climate debate. And as, as we've also learned and talked about earlier podcasts, the current policies, especially the last two decades of spending uh, on, you know, trillions of dollars of spending on attempting to transition away from hydrocarbons, this has uh, fueled inflation, energy inflation is with us now. The price of oil, which still powers nearly 97% of all transportation, is on track to reach uh, or exceed uh, not only half-century highs, possibly historic highs. It's even possible that uh, before the Ukraine crisis ends, that oil could hit uh, highs that are higher than any we've ever seen, and gasoline prices are already at record levels. There are a fair number of serious energy analysts, and I don't mean the apocalyptic hair on fire kind, but sober energy analysts who see the potential in current events to have oil soar past $200 a barrel. That would probably translate it to $10 gasoline in America, 
which would be, uh, I note the obvious, a politically tectonic milestone. We should all hope that doesn't happen. Now, the price of natural gas uh, given is also been driven by a combination of policies put in place globally and in the United States. The price of natural gas has already soared past a decadal high, and natural gas accounts for 60% of all industrial energy use and one-fourth of the world's electricity. Coal prices are at a decadal high, and coal still fuels 40% of the world's electricity. And it's responsible, by the way, not irrelevant, for 70% of all steel uh, production and accounts for half of the cost of making steel. Uh, I, I guess I could point to a recent Deutsche Bank analysis that's not exactly optimistic, and I'll quote them. When it comes to energy inflation, the worst is yet to come. And that's because of the, uh, the lag between higher energy prices and the subsequent impacts on the cost of goods and services of all kinds. I think it's important to note that uh, as, a, as a catalytically important or tectonic as the Ukraine invasion is, energy prices started to soar, in fact, breached $100 a barrel for oil well before Russia invaded the Ukraine. But it's, it is, of course, the fallout from that invasion that, uh, that's for, formed a kind of uh, economic catalyst to push prices higher. And of course, it's also been a political catalyst to think about how to deal with the linkages. And of course, it's not helped uh, resolve any of the debates. Uh, in fact, I would say it's, it's hardened uh, the battle lines of the debate over accelerating an energy transition and uh, being realistic about what's possible. I've talked earlier about uh, the tweet that Elon Musk uh, famously or infamously put out a couple of weeks after the invasion when he, he said, and again, I'll quote it again, we need to increase oil and gas output immediately, end quote. Well, that's... He, he's not in a majority when it comes in policymaking circles right now. Uh, both uh, the European Union and the United States and President Biden, the International Energy Agency, the European Commission, all made announcements on, sort of on the heels of, of Musk's observation and that made by others that instead of increasing oil and gas production everywhere, we're going to uh, double down. And they, they're using exactly those words, doubling down on um, wind, solar, and, and batteries. Uh, so the debate that we now have is, is sort of this conflict between having more wind, solar, and batteries and less oil and gas and coal produced elsewhere. So the debate in the EU about delinking, of course, is entirely anchored in the facts that pretty much everybody knows by now that Europe depends on Russia for about a quarter of its oil and about 40% of its natural gas. And Germany is even more dependent. So, and the, the debate is not just, you know, a casual one. I, you know, I want to go to a different store to buy something because I don't like their price. It's because there's no other options. And a loss of a major share, never mind all of Russia's energy supplies for the world, would, would trigger what I would call and what historians will call the third. And if it were to happen, if a significant share of Russian energy were taken off market, it would not only trigger an energy shock, it would be the biggest global energy shock in the history of the modern world. I mean, hydrocarbons are, as I said, and I've said many times, are still essential for modern society. They constitute 84% of all of the world's energy. And Russia is a one of the three biggest suppliers, taking significant amounts of 
essential energy off markets has consequences, economic and geopolitical. I mean, to go back to pre-war history, historians have pointed out that President Roosevelt's 1941 ban on U.S. oil sales to Japan, keep in mind the United States at that time was the world's primary exporter, that that ban was one of the events that triggered Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. And as I pointed out earlier, let's come back to more modern history, uh, the political events of the 1972-73 Arab oil embargo, where the uh, Saudi Arabia in particular got Arab nations together to embargo oil exports to the United States, is political punishment for the U.S. helping Israel defend itself against the Arab nations attacking that country in 1972. So it was a political response, not unlike what's going on, uh, sadly, today in Ukraine. Uh, 1979 was a political event, the uh, Iranian Revolution, which also took a quantity of oil off market roughly comparable to the 72-73 embargo. Those two events triggered oil price increases of 200% and 400% respectively, and both triggered global recessions. Uh, those were, again, I'll repeat, those were events that happened not because of the uh, absence of oil or gas, but rather political decisions to embargo or remove the sale of oil in that particular case from world markets. This time, this time there's potential for an even greater energy shock because the previous two energy shocks were entirely oil centric. The Russia-Ukraine crisis also involves natural gas at a scale comparable to the quantities of oil that are at risk. So today's tensions uh, have twice the potential fuel impact, their fuel price and economic and social impacts. And they have another feature, unfortunately, is that for the first time, we now have an energy crisis with the additional dangerous dynamic of the uh, counterparty being a nuclear armed state. So in effect, the world's embroiled in a, uh, a crisis, an energy crisis with twice the economic punch of the previous two of the past half century, combined with the class of risks that we faced during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis when President Kennedy and the Soviet leader Khrushchev approached the nuclear brink. So for those who haven't read their history on that, I would suggest uh, using either Dr. Google or read a couple of books. It was, it was one of the two times in modern uh, nuclear weapons history where the world came to the brink. So policymakers are discovering uh, that this is not, not only non-trivial, it's a very, a very serious uh, situation for, for the world, uh, huge consequence, long tail, and the two decades of sort of hypertrophied rhetoric about an energy transition just haven't changed the landscape. They haven't changed the geopolitical or economic landscape. And in fact, I'd argue they've made it worse. We have, I'll restate it because it's really a critical fact, we have a world in which 84% of all energy comes from hydrocarbons. That's just two percentage points down from two decades ago after trillions of dollars of spending on solar and wind and alternative technologies that today may be approaching 4%, closer to 3% of global energy. Again, for the record, electric vehicles uh, currently, despite doubling, uh, two years of doubling of sales, they're uh, eliminating about 0.3%, 0.3% of world oil demand. 
So we have we, we enter this uh, time of political crisis, essentially uh, with two decades of naivete about energy realities, and that that naivete has robbed the United States and Europe of important soft power options to counter Russian ambitions. So what would we do? What uh, what could we do different? Well, the, let's let's look at um, what what we're doing now. Uh, what Europe, in fact, is trying to do, because that will tell us a lot what we could do. I mean, we, we have in the news, and again, you can uh, use the magic Dr. Google machine to see what, uh, what's been announced. But let me summarize what Europe is announcing they're trying to do about energy in the face of the Ukraine crisis. Maybe the most telling admission of what the challenges are for Europe to delink from hydrocarbons from Russia and to delink from hydrocarbons in general, but maybe the most telling fact is that when Putin demanded that people, countries start paying for their oil and gas in rubles, there were a lot of pundits saying, well, that was the end. That was the end for Russia, right? It was going to be the collapse of the ruble. Nobody would use rubles. Well, anyway, it's cut to the chase. European firms are all uh, finding ways to pay for the oil and gas they need in rubles, as are many other nations. It's a, a, a political miscalculation, if you like, to think that that would, would end the ability for uh, money to flow to Russia during this crisis by uh, our Western world economies still buying oil and gas from Russia, from Putin. In fact, maybe another indicator of just what the energy realities are is that the European Union is considering, is announced consideration of relabeling natural gas as part of the sort of getting it a green label as part of the energy transition solution. You know, so long as it's used to displace coal, I think there's a caveat, but we'll just see how elastic that constraint is in the, in the real world. Obviously, environmentalists are not happy to have natural gas uh, labeled as part of the green transition, but that's the reality of what, of what uh, the EU is having to face. And if we look at some of the specific uh, actions the EU has been taking in the, in the recent month, uh, or so since we've talked about this, uh, well, okay, in a nod to reality, Germany announced very recently it would keep some 6,000 megawatts of old coal-fired and oil-fired electric power plants available to become online in the event that Russia decided to retaliate by cutting off exports of natural gas. If, the, if Russia did that, it would be not only economically devastating to Europe, it would literally be a lights-out event, it'd be extraordinarily difficult to keep the lights on in Europe, especially on cloudy days or if there's a wind lull like there was for a week uh, at the end of last year that caused the pre-war uh, price inflation of natural gas in Europe. There are other proposals the Euro European nations are trying to punish Russia. They want to make it illegal to ban European shipping companies from carrying Russian crude on ships. It turns out they can't really do that. Uh, it's complicated. It's not easy. Uh, enforcement would be difficult. So they're instead turning to the idea of, well, making it impossible or banning uh, European and Western companies that issue maritime insurance from insuring uh, ships carrying Russian crude. You have to have that insurance to enter ports in most of the world, sort of most of the free world. But it turns out that's not true uh, uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, and in fact, just as a practical matter, proposals to ban or shun, um, say trading outfits that handle Russian crude. That's not working. Uh, 
they are sort of self-banning. Many of the big traders are self-banning. That is, they're not handling Russian crude. So what is that doing? Well, a smaller tier traders are doing it. Chinese uh, traders have emerged to do it. There are dark market traders that are trading Russian crude. In fact, there's one um, one of them has given itself uh, the name. The trading company has named named the firm after a villain in Harry Potter, with no small irony. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, the bottom line is when you think about trying to ban uh, the world from buying Russian oil, in particular, we have lessons on the how well those efforts worked when they were directed at banning the world from buying Iranian oil or Venezuelan exports. What happens is that that crude then flows to other nations, nations that don't participate in the sanctions. In this case, it would be India, for example, and China and many other nations. Uh, the oil is carried on ghost fleets, so-called ghost fleets with chips with fake registries, chips that do location spoofing, that do dangerous and surreptitious transfers of oil at sea. I mean, the bottom line is, uh, it's a very, uh, oil is very fungible. It's a leaky system. There's lots of people in the world that will keep buying Russian oil and are. And then, then you have the functional possibility of tracking the molecules. If we embargo, we make illegal buying Russian crude to go into Hungary's re refineries, which by the way, is a sticking point in the bands in, in Europe right now, because the, the refineries in many parts of Europe are, are, are specifically tuned to refine Russian crude and can't easily switch without time and a lot of money to refining other crude. So if you ban it, there'll be a shortage of gasoline and diesel fuel bigger than there already is in, in Europe and prices will soar. And then when the uh, oil uh, goes to say refiners in India, which it is now doing by the way, and blended with crude from other nations, and then is resold as diesel fuel in Europe, very hard to track, functionally impossible to track, and in fact is already happening. I, I, you get the point. These are these are um, these are complex markets. They're global markets. They're huge. The, the money involved is enormous, which is why it's so profoundly difficult to make differences with uh, sort of the stroke of the pen and simplistic uh, uh, policy formulations. And, all, and almost all of these plans will uh, increase energy costs. Actually, what the EU is now saying with its, its big plan, which by the way, it's not a plan focused on banning Russian oil so much as again, replacing Russian oil and gas with alternatives. So the, EU is, the European Union has announced a plan. It's a five-year plan. They've said, they've said it will cost hundreds of billions of dollars, which is, a, as I'll explain, a, a, a grotesque understatement of what it's really gonna cost. And it's a plan that will um, also involve uh, unprecedented, because you, you know why, expansion of wind and solar. It will include aggressive conservation measures and indeed some forced, quote, behavioral changes in how people use energy. And it, it, the plan altogether uh, will still require lots of oil and gas and coal, by the way, and only eliminate about one third of Russian gas imports and take five years. Uh, over those five years, the Russians might choose to do something. I mean, it's pretty naive to think that if, if the EU were to launch a, a massive plan to displace Russian oil and gas and coal, it, that uh, the Russians won't do anything in response. I'm not talking militarily. I'm talking about in terms of potential if, if, uh, if embargoes themselves. As if you're going to shift away from us in five years, well, okay, we'll shift away from you today and stop shipping it out. I mean, those kinds of things are not are not at all impossible in the real world uh, that we're dealing with. 
In fact, uh, the EU plan, by the way, just for context, when the EU has put out in a press release that it could cost the European nations hundreds of billions of dollars to, again, emphasize partially dealing from Russia, the real cost of the plan they floated is probably more like uh, more north of a trillion dollars. You know, Reistad Energy looked at the plan uh, that the EU has floated and pointed out that building just the solar and wind uh, installations, the additional ones that the EU uh, proposes to build in their plan, would by themselves approach a trillion dollars. And, and, and we require, and I'll, I'll quote what they said, it would require a wartime-like planning, wartime levels of investment in construction and production. And it would, it would, the levels of, uh, of spending would not eliminate uh, the need for oil, gas, and coal, or eliminate, in fact, uh, imports of Russian gas for Russian pipelines. Uh, that's the, in the plan just simply wouldn't achieve it. And ignored in the sort of this scramble to replace Russian hydrocarbons, I mean, it's the, the bottom line fact that the details of the plans aside before the invasion, before the invasion, the International Energy Agency had put out a aspirational plan of what it would take to eliminate hydrocarbons. I mean, I, they, they weren't motivated by eliminating Russian hydrocarbons. They were focused more on the broader, you know, quote, climate question about eliminating hydrocarbons. It's important to remember what the IEA uh, has been saying for years, that they've been pointing out for years that the signatories to the Paris Accord are not uh, implementing the reductions in hydrocarbons they promised in that accord. And now the IEA, that you are proposing even more ambitious plans. Uh, again, and include things like prohibitions on some aspects of car ownership, even more ambitious plans that uh, by 2030 will somehow accelerate the reduction of uh, the use of oil, gas, and coal. It, it, these are uh, profoundly naive plans, to put it uh, put it mildly. But I don't have any, uh, we'll call it optimism that they won't they won't be implemented. They may be implemented, and the consequences, economic uh, consequences, will become clear. And the fact that they won't achieve their goals will also become <coughs> clear, which ultimately will have ultimately has. Uh, political and real world policy consequences. So let's turn then to what we might do here in America, because this isn't the first time the United States has uh, attempted to tackle the question about how do, how do we get more energy for the future, but do it with fewer, fewer hydrocarbons, especially less oil and natural gas. I mean, the modern attempts to do this in the United States uh, date back unsurprisingly, to the first energy shock of the post-war world, which was the 72-73 oil embargo, and which led Congress to pass in 1975 uh, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act. It was an act that was radical. Uh, I would call it a panicked act. It was an omnibus policy that was you know, forged in a time of crisis where the world was shocked by the 400% increase in Oil prices, well, ultimately relaxed a little bit back to a mere 300% increase in oil prices. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen today if oil prices went up by 300%? Uh, it would cause political panic. Uh, we would get something like the Energy Policy and Conservation Act again. What that act did in, in uh, distilled to its essence was try to reach three core objectives, and they were to avoid conserve or replace hydrocarbons. 
The act didn't have anything to do with finding ways to increase the production of oil and gas in America, really. It was entirely focused as, as every form of energy legislation since then. It's been focused on avoiding, conserving, or replacing hydrocarbons. Okay. Uh, that was because the world thought we were running out of oil and gas then. And today, of course, the other motivation is we don't want to use Russian oil and gas, or we don't want to use oil and gas in general because the world's burning too much of it. So th that's a distinction with no, without a difference. It's still the goals are the same, to avoid, conserve, or replace hydrocarbons. What we know has happened since then is the world has uh, produced more and consumed more hydrocarbons, despite, again, trillions of dollars of spending globally and the Department of Energy alone has spent well over half a trillion dollars since then on policies directed specifically at avoiding hydrocarbons. And that number doesn't include the subsidies and the credits and the mandates, but just direct spending. So here we are in a world that still needs lots of hydrocarbons and will for a very long time. So what will we do, especially to find more of them that don't come from Russia? Well, some members of Congress today and, and the administration is proposing a kind of uh, energy Marshall Plan. It's uh, no small irony they're using the, uh, the plan uh, put forward by General Marshall uh, at a lecture he gave at Harvard shortly after the end of World War II, where he proposed that the United States Congress, and it did, it did do this, appropriate and spend uh, over a period of a few years $150 billion in inflation-adjusted terms to help rebuild Europe. You know, let's just set aside whether we should or, you know, we could argue, and I would certainly in the camp that that was a humane thing to do. It's too bad we didn't do the same thing for the UK, but that's a piece of separate history. It's a lot of money. Uh, it's spending. And we're now going to launch a plan, ostensibly another energy Marshall plan to spend a lot of American taxpayers' money to help Europe with the energy problem that's a self-inflicted problem. That is their dependence on Russia, oil, gas, and coal. Let me state the obvious. The obvious way to help Europe delake from oil, gas, and coal is to sell, uh, sell Europe American oil, gas, and coal. That would take you to the question, technical question, not the political question. Could we do it? Could America produce enough, especially oil and gas to offset significant amount, if not all of the quantities of energy that Europe buys from Russia. Well, we, we look at recent history, we, we do know the answer to one question, the increase in production of oil and gas on America's shale fields that wasn't planned, wasn't part of a government subsidy program, uh, wasn't part of a policy program, but that increase in energy production from America's shale fields, the increase uh, is far greater than the total uh, consumption of oil and gas by Europe from Russia. So America added uh, to its productive capabilities over a period of about a decade, a quantity of oil and gas equal to and greater than all of the oil and gas that uh, Europe buys from Russia. So the question you want to ask is, I think, could we do that again? I mean, could America do it again? That would be an important technical question to know the answer to before we wrestle with the policy question of whether or not the United States might in fact put in place policies that would facilitate or make that possible. <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me point out two things uh, before I answer whether it's technically possible. You might guess the answer I'm gonna give you is yes, it is. But there's a, a distinction about 
policies that would make that happen that are very different from the current Marshall Energy Plan policies that would entail spending money. The Marshall Energy Plan policies imagine spending lots of taxpayers' money to get more green kind of energy technologies into America and into, into Europe. Uh, unleashing America's productive energy capacity would not require the government to spend any taxpayer money. In fact, it would just simply be uh, the need to establish legislatively some certainty around a regulatory environment that would allow the market to function, the oil and gas market to function without, without the kind of hostility, and I don't use that word lightly, uh, associated with expanding oil and gas production in America. And doing that would not cost America money, it would generate revenues both to the government and savings to American consumers because what that would do is exactly what happened in the past. America would go on to overproduce, which is what producers tend to do, and the production growth would lead to declined costs and savings of not just billions of dollars for world's consumers, but trillions of dollars as you collapse the price of gas and oil, the savings flow directly to consumers. So it, it, it would be a, a wealth generating policy as opposed to a wealth consuming policy to try to have America create what I would call a shale 3.0 revolution. To put a distinction on it, Shell 1.0 began roughly 2007 when the uh, productive capacities of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing in Shell started to rise. Uh, that Shell 1.0 era ended roughly with the price collapse of the uh, 2014 uh, overproduction period, if you like, an overproduction that was fueled by, uh, as history shows, Russia and Saudi Arabia publicly colluding to increase production to damage America's shale producers. America's shale producers recovered from that, uh, not without harm and a third of the businesses going bankrupt into shale 2.0 era, which was even more productive, increased production again. And of course the shale 2.0 era ended with the great lockdowns of 2020 and 2021, which collapsed global energy demand, collapsed prices, destroyed supply chains, caused layoffs and, uh, and took the world into the state we're in now. What I'm proposing is that we could, we could with the right policies, uh, lead to a shale 3.0 era because we know it's possible. We know it's possible for the United States technically to produce more oil and more gas than it's now producing. And because we don't need the increased production, what we would be able to do is increase exports. We know that's the case because we're already exporting natural gas. We're a net exporter of natural gas, and we're already an exporter of, of of oil and refined oil products. And we were on track to becoming a, a sustainable net exporter until the great lockdowns. And we're almost there right now. It wouldn't take much to push the United States into a place where it was a huge net exporter. In fact, for context, the United States still exports a lot of oil and the quantities of oil are being exported from the United States are now uh, double that what they were in 1960 and greater uh, U.S. exports more oil than uh, four uh, OPEC nations. So we're already a big player. The real question you want to know the answer to is, could we be a bigger player yet? Could the shale fields uh, contribute to that again? And importantly, this time, could the technologies of offshore oil production contribute to that again? Because uh, offshore production, which has sort of been in the background of the discussions about energy in recent years will be increasingly important in the future.
as it stands today, as a, again, a calibration point, oil produced and gas produced, but particularly principally oil produced in the deep water fields of the world, supply about a quarter of the world's uh, the fuel. Uh, if it were a country, it would be the world's biggest supplier to the world, bigger than the United States in terms of net supply to the world. And uh, U.S. in particular and Western uh, nations uh, in general are the, uh, are the almost exclusive uh, <coughs> providers and producers of oil from these very technically challenging fields. We know there's a lot more oil, by the way, in the offshore fields. Um, United States is pretty much unique in the world in banning uh, offshore exploration, never mind production. Like we've, we've banned access near exploration to 90% of our offshore. Uh, only a few percent of our offshore is actually in production. And that few percent in America, by the way, produces about 15% of US oil. So we, we know for a geophysical fact, there's a lot more oil there. We know for a fact, technologically, we have the technology to get to a lot of it. And we see evidence of that, by the way, and I've you know, shifted gears here, as you've probably noticed, the deep waters from, from the onshore because it's so important. But we know that a lot more is possible, even in our own hemisphere, uh, with some recent events that haven't been really in the news because, well, they're in the shadow of both the great lockdowns and now in the shadow of the, uh, the horrible events in Ukraine. But just in, um, in recent years, what, what Shell was doing with its offshore platforms in the loud areas of the Gulf of Mexico was a cut in half the time and cost it takes to build large offshore fields that access billions of barrels of oil. And Exxon, meanwhile, in collaboration with, with Hess, uh, in the Southern Caribbean Sea, right off the coast of Guyana, have uh, identified uh, a massive field, 10 billion barrel oil field offshore Guyana, that went from, a, uh, we'll call it the mapping discovery, to production in an only... Uh, three or four years. This is like uh, you know, warp speed, to, to use a now popular phrase, in the offshore domains. And in that one oil field in the, our hemisphere, uh, in the deep waters off of Guyana, is on track in two more years to produce a million barrels of oil per day. This, this, is, this is twice as much oil uh, as Germany imports from, uh, from Russia. So this is, these are consequential changes in the technology and accessing the incredible resources that are available uh, from the uh, technologies that are pioneered in a large measure by American firms. So unleashing those firms both to get us a Shell 3.0 and to expand capacities in the deep waters are arguably the single most important geopolitical and economic decision that policymakers can make. So let me end with just uh, sort of big picture observation. I mean, just remind everybody, the U.S. is still today the world's biggest producer of oil and natural gas. And we're the biggest exporter of natural gas and a big exporter of oil and oil products. What we need to do now is increase that. The question about whether or not expansion is possible, because it is starkly clear from what's going on in Ukraine and what the European nations are trying to do that Europe will need and the rest of the world will need more oil and gas produced by friendly nations. Whether or not the United States will do that or could do that is dependent on just three factors, technology, money, and permissions. I'm going to phrase them as questions. Will foreseeable technology advances support the acceleration of cost-effective ways of getting more oil and gas from America's shale fields and the offshore domains? We know the answer to that. 
Yes. Will capital markets, not taxpayers via subsidies, provide the billions of dollars needed to fund uh, those kinds of developments in America? The jury is out of whether that'll happen because of the political pressures, the so-called ESG movement, environmental, social, and governance movements to penalize firms and invest in oil uh, and gas production. So jury's out. The third question is, will federal and state governments slow walk or outright ban uh, the regulatory permissions that are needed to build the infrastructures, you know, from the wellhead, the pipelines, roads, and ports. Well, uh, the, I, let's just say the jury's out. I would say the answer to that until the Ukraine war was unequivocally no. Uh, federal and state governments would, would, would not uh, reverse their slow walking advance. I think we'll see if that happens now. I think the technology and resource answers are quite clear. Uh, in future podcasts, I'm going to uh, return to the discussion of, could we do it? Could we, could we replicate the shale revolution? Do the technologies exist? I think you might guess, and I'll preview my, my, my answer in a future podcast. Uh, yeah, yes, we can. And the reason we can is not, be, is not because we're discovering new resources. It's because we're discovering and developing new technologies. We've, we've sort of maxed out the capacity of... Uh, the, the shale 2.0 revolution, if you like, of improving efficiencies and labor efficiency with the technologies that were available at that time. But as you might guess, because uh, as I have written and is, is covered in my, my new book, The Cloud Revolution, a lot of what's going on in artificial intelligence software and sensors and automation and robots, all of, a lot of that is directly and critically applicable, not just to industrial markets, but especially to the oil and gas markets. Back then, one post-pandemic survey of 160 executives in the oil field service business, uh, 70% of them said they uh, are increasing or planning to increase their spending in the areas of automation, AI, and robotics. This is extraordinarily bullish for the capacities, the ability to uh, launch uh, a shale 3.0, kind of a, a reset in our energy policies that will uh, generate wealth, if you like, instead of consume wealth, which in the form of higher taxes and higher subsidies. I, uh, we all, we'll see how the politics play out. Um, right now, it's, uh, we'll call it a confused state, but uh, count me an optimist. <laughs> so that, the, that the, the reality is now uh, forcing some decisions. And sadly, the x-ray of what uh, the Ukraine crisis is forcing, the x-ray on what policies don't work, forcing policymakers to face up to decisions that they are they are not eager to make but we're seeing it already happening in in Europe and I think it will I, thi I think it will uh, uh, bleed over if you like into America and force decisions here I think we're we're on the cusp of an energy reset as I've said before I think that that cusp has been um, triggered sadly by energy inflation and sadly by energy dependencies, as I said, uh, in terms of what what uh, Europe is facing in the world to try to delink or de-emphasize the role that Russia plays on the world energy markets. Good news is we have options, which is the question of having the willpower. We have we have the capacity in the entrepreneurial and the engineering community to do something. Whether we have the capacity in the policymaking world to do the right thing, again, remains to be seen. But 
I'm optimistic. I think they're going to be forced in that direction. And there will be a political consequence, which, which we're already seeing in the polls. Inflation, which is dominantly energy driven, is the number one issue on, on, on voters' minds right now, understandably and properly so. Energy inflation robs, robs people of money they could use for things from education and entertainment to, uh, to healthcare. Uh, freeing up that money to be used productively elsewhere is one of the single most important things governments can do. I'm optimistic governments and policymakers will be forced to do that. Anyway, let me remind you that if you uh, you, you like these podcasts, you like what I'm talking about and illuminating, uh, it's helpful for you to, for me, for you to rate and comment, uh, whatever platform you use, uh, give me a rating, uh, hopefully a good one. <laughs> so that'd be nice. Uh, of course, send me uh, your questions and your objections, uh, ideas and thoughts on what you want me to talk about next. Uh, in forthcoming podcasts, I'm going to talk about the investment implications, if you like, of uh, what's going on and what I think will happen. And I'm also going to talk again about electric vehicles because I like electric vehicles. I just don't think they're going to take over the world, but I like them. We're going to talk about that. I'm optimistic about where electric vehicles are going to go. So on that note, until next time, this is Mark Mills for The Last Optimist, signing off. Thank you.